Welcome to your November 2011 edition of Voices of Experience. I'm your host, Brian Walter, and for the next nine months, we are going to explore, debate, scrutinize, unpack, repack, comment on, occasionally mock, and continuously celebrate the art and business of speaking professionally. We're also extending the value of VOE by continuing the conversation. It's easy. Go to the National Speakers Association Facebook page, then just post your questions and comments about the programs that we've uploaded there. So let's get to it. First up is our VOE format Awesome Excerpts. In Awesome Excerpts, we are actually hearing a portion of a top speaker's live presentation. This month, we're featuring Mike Domish, CSP, with the Date Safe Project. Mike speaks to students, educators, and the military on dating, sex, and safety. But for today's purposes, just know that Mike covers a really tough subject with an even tougher audience. So interaction is essential. The first excerpt is part of the opening to Mike's Can I Kiss You program, where he has just brought two college students on stage as volunteers. Note Mike's use of the call and response technique. He gets the audience to make verbal affirmations he has prepared them to say, and he also gets them to collectively and literally fill in the blanks. You could almost hear the buy-in taking place. Take a listen. Brody, you're going to imagine you're on a date. Okay. This date's going so well, you want to give your partner a kiss. Yes, yes. <laughs> How do you know when it's the right time to make your move? I have to answer this? Yes. How do, how do I know? How do you know? Body language? Body language. Good answer. I knew that's a good answer. Say good answer. Good answer. In fact, have you ever heard of getting that look? Yes. Oh, you know that look. All right. Very good. I believe I know that. You do it all the time, I bet. Yes. Well, okay. <laughs> Let's say you've been given the look. At that point, do most people stop and say, may I kiss you, or do they just go for it? They go for it. They go for it. See what the audience thinks. Audience, do most people ask first or go for it? Go for it. Clearly, you know what you're talking about because everybody agrees with you. Here's what you're going to do. See that camera right there? You're going to imagine that's your partner. Okay. Yes. And on the count of three, not until the count of three, but on the count of three, you're going to share with everybody here this evening your version of that look. Here we go, Brody. Now, we're going to help you. We're going to help you by counting to three for you. Here we go. One. Two. Give it up for Brody. Give it up for him. Your name is? I'm Daniela. Daniela? Nice. You actually can have a seat right there, Daniela. Very nice to meet you. Thank you. Everybody say, hey, Daniela. Daniela, you are now the one on charge in this date. So you two are next to each other, and your character's on a date, so you're not yourselves. And you want to let the person know you're interested. But everybody already said most people, you know, they go for it. They don't ask. If you're not going to say, can I kiss you, where are you likely to, well, to place your hand on him to let him know? <laughs> Hold on, folks. <laughs> I can see a few of you took that a whole other direction. <laughs> And you're proud of it. <laughs> Keep in mind it's a clean show, so you just want to let them know you're interested. Where are you likely to place your hand? I didn't say to do it, Danielle. <laughs> she touched the leg. If you agree that's most common, say most common. It is. L let's say that it happened. He looks down, he sees her hand on his leg. There's two most common reactions he could have. Option number one, oh, how nice. <laughs> or option number two, hands on my knee, getting close to some other areas. Yes. <laughs> She wants me. Do you think it's one or two? two. Alright, no, almost everywhere we go, people say two, which is interesting because that means we completely misread Daniela. 
She was only letting us know she was a little interested, and we took it much further. Do these kind of misreads happen a little bit or a lot? A lot. They did an outstanding job. They also helped us prove that body language is very unreliable. How many agree, even if you've been in a long-term relationship, you can still misread each other? If that's true, say misread. Very easily. Body language can only give you signals. Can never give you the answers. Now, in this next audio clip from later on in his speech, Mike has just finished talking about most people's failure to stop one person, in this case named Jordan, from taking advantage of another person at a party. Mike then goes on to share a shocking truth about his sister. There's a note on my door that says, Mike, call home immediately. So I run back and pick up the phone. Hey, Mom, I see a note on the door. What's up? And my mom asked me if I was sitting down. I instantly knew something was wrong. How many be worried at this point? Just say worried. worried. I started to prepare for that call that we all dread. That someone's died. And in a weird way, you're ready for the call. Because your brain says this is going to happen sooner or later in life. And so you start to emotionally prepare yourself by saying, was it a grandparent? Was it an aunt? Was it an uncle? And suddenly my mom says, Mike, Sherry's been raped. And that call, you never prepare for. It was September 1989, I remember it like it was yesterday. Why? Because one thing and only one thing went to my head. It was a very simple and clear thought. I wanted him. Yes. If you think you'd feel the same kind of rage, say, yes, I would. Yes. I know I was there. I felt the rage, the anger. What I was going to do, I got my hands around his neck. He was caught. He was convicted. He will die in prison. That is good. You are absolutely correct there. Yes, that's a good thing. Here's the weird part, though. We all just agreed we'd want to kill him. If you agree with me, say, we agree. How many agree it's a little weird that we all want him dead now that he got the one we love? But 15 minutes before, we had a million reasons not to stop him. If you agree with me, there's hypocrisy in that. Say hypocrisy. And that's what woke me up. I looked in the mirror one day and said, I don't really have a right to want the rapist dead if I don't start stopping the rapist when they're right in front of me. If I really am going to get mad about this, I've got to do something about it when it's right there. If you agree with me, that's common sense. Say common sense. And I know nobody in here wants to be a hypocrite, and we can all apply common sense, and that's why we need to be able to stop Jordan. I call this being a friend, by the way, because even if you don't know the person, you can treat them like they're a friend. It's something really simple we can do. Now, we featured both of these clips for a key reason. It might have been tempting after the first clip to think, well, yeah, this whole call and response technique is great for Mike, but he's funny and my topic isn't funny, or my topic is serious, or my topic is emotional, and and that technique won't work for me. But in the second clip, we heard how well Mike applied call and response in the highly charged emotional climate he created. He got an entire audience to all verbally process a level of hypocrisy they all shared. Powerful stuff and an awesome excerpt. All right, next up, we have another Platform Power segment, and today we are with Karen Lawson, CSP PhD. Now, Karen, tell me if this is right. I heard you actually got your dissertation, your doctoral dissertation, basically on interaction. Absolutely. It is. It was called Cooperative Learning in the Classroom in a Corporate Environment, and Cooperative Learning forms the basis of all interactive learning. 
right? Of course, you had to give it a nice formal title because it was academia. All right. Now, one thing I've noticed about uh, Next Generation is that they don't just want to be part of the presentation. They expect to. What do you mean? My opinion is just as valid as yours. Thank you, Karen, for having a PhD, but you haven't asked what I think. Right. And I think that early on we thought that was amusing or interesting. Isn't that cute about the next generation? And now as they take on more and more positions of power and authority within our clients, we're saying perhaps we should actually cater to that that need of that new demographic. Well, and the other thing I'd like to point out, too, is it's not just a generation thing. It's also uh, a cultural thing. We find as more of us do work internationally, this technique works very well with international audiences. Let's jump to it. I think from the starting places, we know that when we talk to uh, our clients or our prospective clients, they say things like, okay, now this is going to be interactive. And I don't know any speaker who doesn't answer, of course it is. Of course it's going to be interactive. And then inside that little voice goes, uh-oh. So Karen, help us with uh-oh. Well, first of all, I think it's important whether it's an all-day seminar or it's a keynote speech, get them active from the start. And one of the ways that we can do this is something I call instant assessment. And we can do that either low-tech or high-tech. A low-tech, and this is for any size audience, I've done it for audiences of 1,000, is give everybody a stack of ABCD cards. And then you show three or four multiple-choice questions, and you ask the audience to hold up the appropriate card indicating their answer. It's just really cool because you're doing these cards in different colors. You have the ABC. It's, it's just very visual, very graphic. And people are immediately engaged. So I would start with a question such as, my main motivation for being here is, A, to escape from the office, B, my friend was coming. C, to learn new tips and techniques to be a better manager. And D, I have no idea why I'm here. And so it's very non-threatening. It's kind of fun. People like that. Uh, I might say if I'm doing a leadership program, the second question might be, I would describe my leadership style as A, walk softly and carry a big stick. B, Attila the Hun. C, I have no style. Or D, let my direct reports do their own thing. So there, there are all kinds of variations, but again, it's it's light, it gets them engaged, and it gets them involved, and you've got them in the palm of your hands immediately. And this works for all, all age groups. I love this technique. So uh, how big are these cards? Like I would say three by, by six, four. No, three by four. Very okay. small. Right. And are these colored ones so they can yes, see the color? Yes, every, every, every card is a different color. And as I said, with a large audience, it's just really interesting because it, it's it's you see this flood of color out there in the audience. It's really kind of neat. So they're holding up their color and they're seeing how many uh, are the similar color to them. So they're instantly kind of seeing how they are in relation to their peers, which is interesting. Absolutely. This is a a fabulous uh, old school, low tech, but still massively interactive thing because I'm guessing everybody does it. Everybody does it. That's the other thing. No one feels threatened or put on the spot. Uh, Depending upon the size of the audience, I might ask a couple people to explain the reason for your particular choice. So again, it's, it's an accordion kind of frame in that you can expand it to have as much discussion around it as you want to or very little or none at all. And now I notice, uh, Karen, that in each of those four answers, it would be serious answer, serious answer, serious answer, smart-ass answer. Right. I'm guessing that's intentional. Absolutely. Well, for example, when I ask your main motivation for being here, and the last choice is I have no idea why I'm here, seriously, there are a lot of people who have no idea why they're in the session. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's okay, too, because that gets it out of the way. And you leave the smart-ass one for the end. Yes. When you hold it up, that gives you an opportunity to make a comment or to uh, you know, give some information or talk to those people, I'm guessing. Yes, absolutely. 
All right, interesting technique. Okay, so that's the low-tech method, and I think the budget for that is about $25 at Staples or Office Depot. The biggest problem is getting someone to do all these cards. Yes, when your client says, is there anything we can do to help you? (laughs) Yes, there is. Okay. All right, so that's the low-tech method. Now, you said also there's the high-tech version. Yes, the high-tech. There have been a lot of electronic audience response systems uh, around for a while. Uh, One of the things that we're using these days is called polleverywhere.com. Poll everywhere. And that's where they use their cell phones? They're using their cell phones. So the really neat thing about that is, of course, the results are coming uh, up automatically on the screen so people can see where they are relative to other people. So uh, they're using it a lot in colleges and universities. And once again, it really appeals to those folks who are really into electronics. Uh, here's a question that some little more, I guess, old school speakers might think. Um, if someone in the audience has problem texting, I don't want to be like tech support from the stage. Is it reach a sophistication level that the majority of the audience is able to quickly figure out how to text to a number? Or are you finding that people are like, I don't understand. Wait, hold on, help me. Uh, I find that people, if they don't know, they're either asking a neighbor or they're just being quiet. They don't want to be know that they're dumb. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's good. That's good, Ken. All right, I like that. Follow-up question on the whole international thing, and I want you to take this in the right way. Um, there could be some speakers who say, you know, I've done a lot of international presenting, and I'm not so sure my audiences would respond to that. So, you know, bluntly, I'm just asking from a credibility point of view, how do we know that you know that this will work uh, in international audiences? Well, actually, the timing is really good for this question because <laughs> okay. I, uh, I just uh, got a contract with the United Nations, for example. They're, you got a contract with the United Nations? Yes, it's their okay. United Nations uh, staff uh, college, basically. And what they're doing is developing a train-the-trainer program based on my book, The Trainer's Handbook, and they've identified the content pieces they want. And what I've been contracted to do is to go into uh, the program and put interactive activities in because they realize that it doesn't make any difference what the culture, they know it's very important to put the interactivity in there. So the United Nations has hired you to jazz up their content. Absolutely. Okay, I don't think anyone can go to the uh, interaction beach and kick sand in your face on that one. Yes, my friends, David Newman here with another edition of Point Counterpoint. In this segment, we have Andrea Gold going head-to-head with Vicki Sullivan. The topic, fee integrity is key versus fee integrity is keeping you broke. Andrea, I want to talk to you about this fee integrity. Now, you know what? Hey, what's it to you? Well, it's a lot. Let me tell you, we got a recession going on. You've got calendars nose diving in a heartbeat. You've got cancellations all over the place. And let me tell you something. These buyers are being squeezed like never before on everything. And that means speaker fees. And so... Some of them. Don't, don't make assumptions. <laughs> yeah, so, so I understand. Some groups are, are squeezed and some groups are, are well-budgeted. That's true. Let's some make bro- a differentiation. Okay, so if they're well-budgeted, I say go for broke. Charge your highest fee. That's fine. However, if you're not branded and you're in the less than $5,000 uh, category, that category is getting killed right now. It is, you know, the buyers that that used to have budgets don't anymore. Mm-hmm. Buyers who used to make the decisions, that decision's been kicked upstairs to the executives. So now they've got a false sense of power. Boy, don't make me talk about that. So there's a lot of things going on right now that makes it very tempting. And I think speakers are in an, a very awkward position. Do they starve? 
or do they lower their fee? Well, I think that the the clients and the prospects have kind of decided for us, you know, and the speakers because they come on in and, and they're expecting a negotiation in most cases. That's absolutely correct. And I think that uh, it's up to us to decide just how much we want to negotiate because it is a free country and uh, people need to be free to uh, charge whatever they think is right. Now, I agree that you can't be willy-nilly about it because if you charge one fee to one and one fee to the other, thanks to uh, message boards and social media, that word gets out. And actually, I see that willy-nilly happening all the time, just as an observation. Yes, willy-nilly is not a good thing. Okay, (laughs) so I think we can agree that speakers should not be willy-nilly. However, I think that fee can be a fee strategy, and you can create a benchmark and say, if you do blank, I can lower my fee. And I think speakers need to be free to create those benchmarks. Let me give you an example. What if a speaker has an opportunity to get killer footage? I mean, he's talking major keynote, and you know how the, the keynote buyers want those big group footage, you know, the big events. Oh, yeah. Okay, big prestigious event. The speaker needs footage. If the, if the organization already has an in-house AV staff, which a lot of organizations do, why can't that speaker negotiate that fee in exchange of getting killer footage, which is definitely a value to him or her? Yeah, I agree with that. You, you actually have to weigh all the factors and decide. I'm totally into up, upholding the speaker's fee integrity, but it does not mean that you don't have uh, issues of value for value. Again. Well, I, I agree with that. I think there needs to be some rhyme and reason. And, and that's why yes. the willy-nilly stuff is, is bad. Yeah, yeah. there's a little dog and pony show going on right now with clients where it's just you give them the fee and then they immediately react by saying, let's negotiate it. Oh, absolutely. And here's <laughs> why. Because the political environment in their organizations, they want to go out and brag mm-hmm. to all their mm-hmm. peers, hey, I got the speaker for X amount. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So I mean, you know, the, basically what the the buyer is saying, and I'm sure you've seen the same thing. They just don't want to carry the political water for X amount of fee. They need bragging rights. They need a feather in their cap right. politically. I, I do see that quite a bit, and Absolutely. it's it's really up to the speaker or the bureau if they're involved to kind of know where everybody's at, what their position is out on the on the fee integrity situation. So then the question becomes is mm-hmm. is not are you going to negotiate your fee, but really how do you negotiate your fee? Can you have benchmarks? What I've noticed with a lot of buyers and this puts speakers in a very awkward position. They'll have buyers or organizations that they've worked with for a long time. They've done a wide variety of workshops, they're seen as the sole source provider, and then something happens with that organization. Uh, Uh, their market crumbles, the industry's not doing as well, then that buyer will play the relationship card to the speaker and say, Mm -hmm. will you lower your fee? You've gotten a lot of money from us during the boom times. We really need you to help us out now. Okay, well, if how do you keep fee integrity when you have that kind of situation? Well, the first thing is, I noticed that uh, a lot of speakers react too quickly you know, in a, in a financial discussion, I think the first advice that I would give is you don't have to answer on the spot. Absolutely. And it gives you a chance to think through creative alternatives. You know, what's the value for value? I always come back to that. I think John Patrick Dolan uh, was the first one I ever heard that from. 
And once you think about that, it, it kind of clarifies your position. Are they just trying to play a game? What is to be gained by you lowering your fee? Is it fair to the other party? Is it fair to all of your other clients that you're lowering your fee? Because you know through the grapevine, people are going to hear about this. Oh, yes. Thank you, social media. I mean, it's going <laughs> to be your fees are out there in a flash anyway. Yeah. I, 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 how many times do you say oh, to the client, you know, the speaker doesn't want you to tell anybody this is just between us. And then, of course, you know, I'm talking to another prospect and they're saying, oh, yeah, so-and-so told us that, you know, he's going to give us a really good deal. And, of course, I wasn't supposed to tell anybody, but I'm telling you. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's why I think, once again, benchmarks. Mm -hmm. If you have benchmarks up front, then you can really respond on the spot because you're ready for it. I mean, let's face it. Buyers think speakers are a dime a dozen. They see them as interchangeable parts unless it's their speaker that they want. Okay, that's the only exception. That's why you have to be kind of a gotta have speaker versus yeah, a nice yeah. to have that's speaker. That's a whole other discussion, but unique selling proposition is definitely important. Absolutely, and I think that really plays a role in fee negotiations. Mm-hmm. But what do we do in a market? How can we maintain fee integrity in a marketplace where buyers see us as interchangeable parts and they are willing to say, if you won't meet our fee, there's 5,000 who will see ya. Well, I think that a spe- uh, one thing I want to say, I think a lot of speakers cave in too soon. Again, with uh, uh, your benchmark idea is a good one, but it doesn't mean every time you have to cave in. No, and I tell my clients all the time, you have to be okay with walking away. Yeah. And so when I work with clients, I give them their walk away fee. And I say, if you don't, if you get a fee less than this and they won't budge, strategically you need to walk away yeah yeah i've had i've had speakers uh, where i've brought an offer to a speaker and they'll say maybe next year you know because it was too low and that's you know, a fabulous may, response and it re, and and it often will work yes. and they'll they'll cave in the client will cave in and go oops well i guess you know we could dig up the money and have less dessert oh <laughs> what a concept no half the people's not eating that sugar stuff anyway so yeah, spend it on the speaker. Yeah, I, you know, I had a story just, uh, this just happened a few days ago. Uh, a speaker from the Northwest was uh, picked by a client. They had a conference call, everything was good. And then they said, oh, and by the way, we're thinking of adding a breakout, but we're not sure. And uh, we'll let you know in the future. And so I quoted the fee for what a breakout would be. I gave him a creative solution, how I could write up the contract. And the client said, oh, well, we weren't expecting to pay any more for that breakout. You know, totally different talk in another part of the day. So I went to the speaker and I said, "Uh, uh, what's your story here? And he said, no, I'm standing firm on this. It was only an additional, what, 2500 whatever. And the client uh, still hasn't confirmed over that. So on principle, they were thinking that they could just sneak in another talk and, and figured that the speaker would cave in. So here's my question, Andrea, is if, if that's the game, do speakers need to play the game in order to keep their, their schedules filled to the point that they can make their business work? If that's the game in the new economy, and I think the example you gave is a fabulous one because so many buyers are doing the same thing. They're negotiating very heavily. And I think just as devil's advocate, we really need to rethink and redefine what fee integrity really is. Because if it's off market, you're going to go, you're going to starve 
by fee integrity. And I'm not saying, and again, I'm not saying you got to be willy-nilly about it, but I think we need to redefine what fee integrity is. I think we need to look at the marketplace dynamics and mm-hmm. if the buyers have changed because they're not going to budge. Again, if they think there's 10 speakers for every slot they've got and someone's not going to give them something and five other speakers do, that initial space, unless they're a got to have, they're going to lose. How many times can you lose before your calendar's in danger, before your business is in danger? That's the key strategic question. Yeah, so, I can tell you a lot of speakers are very, very hungry, and and, and we understand it's it's a very different economy. I do think in, the, in this economy that you need to be very creative. That's my answer. Uh, you need to be clear, as uh, you know, what you said about having the, the bench benchmarks. Uh, also, very very creative in how you address a financial offer, or or what drives you. Got to be clear. Wh- what drives you first? I mean, is it your bank account? Is it sharing information? Uh, how much can you walk away from? Uh, what will give you future business that might not give you immediate finances? Uh, you know, such as a a great video demo or whatever. You need to to list these things and have it ready. And again, you don't have to react. The one thing I would say again, don't react immediately and give an instant answer. Think about it. Think of the repercussions uh, and then get back to the client. You know, if they really want you, they can wait a day. And I'll, and I'll dovetail on that comment. And in, in while you're not reacting, do some due diligence. Because mm-hmm. seriously, these planners are promising stuff that even if they are well-intentioned, it's a very... Uh, unlikely that these things are going to happen. I can't tell you how many buyers have told my clients, oh, if you do this one thing for free, or if you do this one thing for 25 cents on the dollar, you're going to get so much more business and blah, 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 blah. This will be a great opportunity for you, blah, 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 blah. Well, guess what? I don't believe it. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. So I think while we're looking at the ramifications of that fee integrity and that fee negotiations, we need to do our due diligence and really ask ourselves what evidence keyword evidence do we have that this is a true opportunity and that from that place i think we can redefine in the integrity and i think what we can say to people is look here's the deal i got you won't give me that deal i'll match that fee and i have to have evidence that you can do that and if i have no evidence other than your promise you know, or any kind of shred of information that this can happen, then we got to stick to my deal. You know, you're absolutely right. You know, we started talking about fee integrity and look at us. We're ending up talking about negotiating with integrity. How cool is that? Yay, I'm right. Yay, (laughs) I win. No, we win. Winning. All right, normally on VUE, we have a segment called Building the Biz. I'm going to do a variation of that now. We're now going to do Protecting the Biz. And right now, I have two tax experts with us here. Now, right now, you're probably thinking, taxes. Oh, please, I don't want to think about taxes. And I don't need to worry about taxes because I hire a CPA, a nice, fully licensed, certified CPA, so I don't have to worry about it here. Well, according to my two experts here, 
you do have to worry about it because it's not just what you don't know that'll hurt you, but what your CPA doesn't know. So with us today, we've got Vern Hoven and Sharon Kreider. So you specialize oh, in California? I do, but we're really poor there and we need lots of money, which brings you right to your topic you're going to ask me about. That's right. Okay. And that topic is, we're going to start with what I believe is something that most speakers are probably messing up or their CPAs are messing up uh, in conjunction with them. And that is paying multi-state income taxes. Now, there's a term for it. Basically, if I step into another state outside of my home state... It's called nexus. It's called nexus, which means I've breathed oxygen in that state and I've done some sort of business-making activity. So even if it's, let's say... Let's say I get hired by a firm in Texas and they're having a regional meeting in Michigan and I go to Detroit, Michigan at a hotel and I give my 45 minute speech and I leave and I got paid 50,000 bananas. I now owe money. Is that correct? You're going to have to spend five, you send 5,000 of those bananas to Michigan at a minimum. I agree. I agree. So it's non-resident tax. Every state needs money. They're hunting, hunting for money, and that's why my own California prejudice, you come into my state, you get paid here, we want your money because we don't have any more of our own. So that's what it is. It's about working in other states, and of course it's about professional ball players. it's about professional golfers. Professional it's, speakers, I don't know. Oh, that's right, professional speakers who earn money in various states, they have to pay state taxes. Hey Sharon, what happens if they're only one day? I'm in Detroit for one day, and I, and, and I, and I get out and I take, you know, let's just say $10,000. Did you take the money out of Michigan? But I only was there for one day. Do you think Tiger Woods said the same thing? He lives in Florida. Do you think when he walked into Michigan to play a little teeny game of golf that he thinks his money is not taxable? Of course, he hopes it's not taxable, but it is absolutely taxable. The states want the money. So even if I live in a state where I'm paying a whole bunch of tax, like I live in New York or I live in California, if I earn money in another state, the other state wants tax. But if you're listening to us and you're saying, yeah, I'm in New York, I pay already a potload of money, well, it isn't that you pay double tax. It's that if you work in Michigan, Michigan wants its share. You get a credit back. It's just a level of compu complication. You don't want to know how to compute it. Let's, let, let's put a number to it. So what you're saying is that if I pay $500 to Michigan, and, but I had to report the exact same income to New York, and the tax was $600 in New York, it's a higher bracket, then what I get to do is I get to take the $500 I paid to Michigan and reduce the $600 by $500. Right, right. Well, well, wait a minute. Let's assume that New York and Michigan were the same. So basically what I've done is I've taken New York tax and given it to, to, to Michigan. This hasn't cost me a dang dime. Oh, it will cost you something, but it'll cost CPA bills. Yay. Uh, that's the uh, real problem. I paid last year, Brian, in 20 different states. I paid a total in those 20 states, $1,900. I, I know the t tax in Washington. I know federal. I don't know the 20 states. I hired a CPA firm out of San Jose. I paid him $3,500 to prepare those tax returns. Now, I didn't do that in Idaho about six years ago. There is a case, Vernhoven against the Idaho State Commission. You have your own court case named I, after you. And I lost. Which is awesome if you're a tax person. I went to all the way up, and it cost me $2,500 in penalties. Do you know what the tax would have been if I'd have filed? 
50 bucks. Come on, what's smarter? To not file and get caught? Or to file and pay the 50 bucks? It's a credit against my other state income tax. Come on, people. All right, now you say that when it's $50. How I happen to know that there's certain states that have minimums. You have to pay them $800. There's like a threshold. Oh, that's California. That's California. No, that's, that's doing but, but, business in California as but, but, a foreign entity. As a foreign entity, not ah. as a person. Okay. You want to file Schedule C, but not as an LLC. That's what you were. Uh, sorry, I interrupted you. Go. Well, there are minimums. There are a couple of ways the minimum works. Sometimes you don't make enough in the state. You're you're making $500 for one speech in Michigan. That might not meet Michigan's minimum filing requirement. You might not have to file But there. you have to find out first. But you have to find out. And or maybe e- even file and show it zero. But what Brian is really talking about is some states, if your corporation operates in a different state. Right. So you form the corporation in Texas, it does business in California, then it's a foreign corporation doing business in California, and the minimum tax is $800 for stepping yeah. into our state. Because many speakers, uh, they're either an LLC or they're an S-Corp, so they are a corporation. They have no presence in, let's say, uh, let's say I'm Bob Schmedlap, and I have Schmedlap speaking, and I'm a S-Corp or an LLC in Texas. I go do and do a series of three speeches in California, but I'm incredibly low paid. I'm a, not even a good speaker. So I only got paid, you know, $200. So I got $600 in actual revenue. Don't live there, don't have a salesperson there, but I have to file as a corporation in there and I have to pay them a minimum of $800. That's right. This is one of the costs of doing business. And you really started out by saying, you know, there are some things your CPA doesn't know. It is unusual for a CPA not to know that if you do business in another state, you have to pay tax in the other state. But what is not unusual is if you don't tell the CPA where you work, you know, you come in to see me in April 1st. And I'm really, really busy. And you hand me a set of books and you say, I made $200,000 last year and I slap it on a resident state tax return. And I don't really say to you, where did you earn the money? That's an unusual question for me to ask of my businesses when you live up the street from me. So make sure that you tell your CPA that it's an issue, that you earn your income in other states so that the CPA has a chance, your tax advisor has a chance, of talking to you about the state requirements. Hey, Sharon, let me ask you a question on that, though. So $800, as Brian just said, if you operate as, a, as an artificial entity. Artificial being like an LLC, LLC or, or, or an S-corp. S-corporation. Okay. What happens if I choose, I know that in California that it's an $800 minimum, can't I go as an individual and say in the contract in California and say, hey, I want to be an individual for that state because it's too high. It's going to cost me $800 if I go under my S corporation or LLC. But if I go as myself as I put it on report the income on a Schedule C, I don't, I'm not subject to the 800 bucks. Is that right or wrong? I could do that. I could go in for an individual contract and now it goes on to my Schedule C. And I've indeed done that before with Minnesota. Minnesota has withholding. You go work there, someone pays you like the Minnesota CPA Society they withhold money right off. makes it very complicated in my corporation to report that. So I put it on my own name, report it in my own Schedule C, pay my taxes, get my credit. That's easier. But if I'm really working in 20 states, all of a sudden I've, I, I no longer get the benefit of my corporation because I have so many individual contracts and so much individual billing. 
How will I get my money if every time I go to another state, I ask them to pay me in, in my individual name instead of my corporate name? So I'm in Washington State. I get hired by uh, a client who's in Atlanta, okay, so Georgia. But they're holding the meeting in Florida. So the check comes from Atlanta, but I actually did the work in Florida. Whose income tax am I liable for? Florida. Florida. Your nexus is there. It, it is I the mean, state you, you that you perform, do the work. You perform wherever your foot is. So not who pays me, it is but where, where I was. Where did you put that? It's where you're physically presenting. I agree. Now, now, some speakers, not saying any names or something, might be, well, how would Florida even know? Oh, thank you for asking that. You want to handle that one first? It's so easy. Well, Florida will know. Now, you picked a bad state because Florida doesn't okay, have a state Okay, but California, because California knows everything. For example, California, they're very aggressive. How, how would California know that I had done a speech there, uh, but I'd been paid by a different state? All right, well, two ways they might know. One is that your CPA might plain tell them. I often say to a client, I say, well, how will the government know I made this money? Well, once you told me, I will tell them you made it. I mean, you know, it's up to me to protect you from yourself. Okay. And so your professional will give you that warning, say, stop it. You're going to get in more trouble than it's worth. But the other way California will find out is the states are sharing information. And the IRS. Well, I mean, they share it with no, each that, other. What, the, the IRS is sharing with the states. The states are sharing with the IRS. I think IRS has now 28 states that they're doing that. I don't think we can any longer think how they're going to find out. You know, they're going to find out. Well, well, but Sharon, let me ask you what's an interesting question. If I operate as a Schedule C and I'm making um, $300,000, the odds, according to the Internal Revenue Service last year's audits, is I've got about a three per, almost a 4%, 3.84% chance of getting audited on an annual basis. What happens if I'm an S-corporation, Sharon? I report the same income on an S-corporation, I make the same $400,000. What's the odds of audit? Less than half of a percent. In other words... Okay, one-tenth of a chance of Schedule C. So I know we shouldn't do audit roulette, but the fact is the IRS audits 10 times more the individual than the artificial entity, such as an S-corporate and LLC. What does that tell you, Brian? It tells me that I should repeat that one more time because that's so shockingly wonderful because I'm an S-corp. Okay, uh, <laughs> so you're saying that for decent income individuals, which we all hope to be with NSA, if I'm just filing it under my name, my you know federal tax or my social security number, Schedule C, I'm making a decent amount of money. I've got about a four percent chance of being audited. But if that exact same scenario, and I've incorporated or I'm an LLC, I have a half a percent chance. And we have the statistics to prove that. I'm not making that up. And we surely are not going to say that that's the reason that you should be an S corporation or an LLC. But those are the facts from Treasury. Sharon. Correct, correct. You should be an entity. It's a separate tax return, yep. and that separate tax return has to have a whole different category, experience level of IRS agent, because it takes more training to be able to look at that kind of a return. Yeah, but it's going to cost me $800 in California. Oh, so it costs you some money to your accountant, and the state needs a little bit of money, but I'm all in favor of paying CPAs. <laughs> All right, here we are with Bill Stainton talking about the upcoming Winter Conference in... In Dallas, Texas. Dallas, Texas, when... Dallas, Texas, you don't normally want to be there in the summer, but this time it's in February. So yeah. Dallas is a good place to be. Yes, not the hottest place on the earth. Exactly. All right, so this is the Winter Conference here. Now, Bill, you are the co-chair of this, yes? Yes, along with Ruby Newell-Legner. All right. 
So we want you to tell us about it here, but here's the here's the concern. I'm listening to this and I'm thinking, Bill's gonna say, Oh, we've got some fantastic speakers here mm-hmm. and you know, here's what their name is, and if you like them, you're gonna have a great conference here. I'm not actually gonna ask you about that. Okay, fair enough. What I am gonna ask you about first, what is the theme and concept of this conference? The theme that we came up with is monetize your message, and here's why. Because as NSA members know, the past few years have been difficult, and it continues to be difficult. It's improving, but it continues to be difficult. And what I've found in talking with a number of speakers is they, they all say some variation of, you know, if it weren't for my coaching, I'd really would have, you know, not made it. Or if, I, if it weren't for my product sales, if it weren't for the fact that I've got an online membership community. You know, so it's always, if it weren't for so-and-so, you know, in addition to just chasing the keynotes, if it weren't for so-and-so, I'd really be in trouble. And I think that's great, but a lot of members don't have that if it weren't for. They're just doing a keynote and maybe, you know, back of the room book sales or something like that model, which granted is working for a few people, but it's a tough model to sustain. Our concept, the idea of a well-rounded wheel has several spokes to it. Your business is based around what you know. And speaking is just, for example, keynoting is one of the spokes of that wheel. That's one way that Mm -hmm. you get your message across. There's also writing and publishing. There's online marketing. There's coaching and consulting. There's partnering and affiliates. There's training. There's product development. There are all these other spokes that can kind of prop up a wheel. You know, a wheel with only one spoke is not going to be a comfortable ride. That's true. Now, you don't have to have all of these spokes, but the idea with our conference is we're going we're gonna to give specific instruction on how do you add these spokes, the spokes that you may not have or may be interested in. How do you specifically add those to your business so that you do have a business that can sustain if one part of the business goes down, you've got other parts to kind of keep you rolling along. All right, so monetize your message, and it's the idea of building these other capabilities. Exactly. That are complementary to your speaking. Yes, basically having an integrated business as opposed to just based on one thing. So how are you going to do that? I've been to these uh, winter conferences, and again, how is it different than just someone's going to get up and make a presentation? How are you going to help attendees truly monetize their message? Here are a couple of things that we're telling our presenters. We're saying, first of all, the most important thing is we want you to teach specific skills. In other words, I want the attendees, when they leave your session, to go, wow, I now know how to do something that I didn't know how to do an hour and a half ago. Not just, oh, now I know why it's important. I really should. No, I know how to do something that I didn't know how to do before. We're also telling our presenters, and I want our presenters to know that we're telling the audience that we are expecting them to get to their content within the first five to seven minutes. None of these sessions were 40 minutes into it. They're still saying, and my third dog was a beagle. And he's, no, we, this is all about content. Another thing that we're doing, which I think is, is pretty cool, we're having an intensive track, which I'll tell you about. We're also having three mega sessions. The mega sessions are based on what we think are kind of three of the core spokes of the wheel. One of them is keynoting. Another mm-hmm. one is writing and publishing. And a third one is coaching and consulting. But here's the cool thing. Each of these mega sessions are divided into two halves. The first half is here's how to create it. The second half is here's how to sell it. So, well, you've sold me. So... So I'll be attending. So me and all of the other attendees, or the other attendees and I, mm-hmm. which would be correct. The other attendees and I. Okay, what you said, because you are in Mensa. All right, so all the other attendees and I that are going to the Winter Conference here, we're going to go to these mega tracks and, you know, how to create it, how to sell it. Right. 
we're going to get specific takeaways. We're going to know how to do things. And the speakers are going to get to the point faster than they ever have before in any exactly. other NSA presentation on the history of the planet. And if not, you, the attendees, have our permission to call them on it. That's right. We have little timers. Yeah, we'll issue timers. It's like, ding, there we go. I'm sorry. No more about your beagle. Get to the point here. Plus for the kids, a petting zoo. <laughs> all right. So those are then the big mega sessions. But yeah. this isn't all about mega sessions, is it? Well, we have an intensive track, which will be taught by Lisa Sasevich and Brendan Burchard about some specific. Here's really how you make some specific products and do some specific things. It's like a deep dive. It's a deep dive. Here's how to here's how to really identify what your system is. Because mm-hmm. let's face it, one thing people buy systems, but a lot of us don't. Well, I don't have a my five step plan or my four step program or a seven step system. But we're going to learn, okay, how do you actually take your content and turn it into a system? And then how do you create products that sell using that system? But we're also having what we call 20-minute toolkit sessions. Because there are some skills, for example, that don't need 75 minutes to teach. Things like, for example, here's how to set up a green screen studio in your own home. Mm -hmm. In 20 minutes, like... Go to the store, go to Home Depot, buy these seven things. Here are the item numbers. Place them here, here, and here. Boom. That's it. 20-minute toolkit session. 20-minute toolkit session. Just a single specific skill that you can learn in 20 minutes. I'm sold. All right. And if anyone else has any questions, they should call you personally at home after 10 p.m. After 10 p.m. Only after 10 p.m. Excellent. All right. Well, thanks, Bill, for letting us know all about the Winter Conference, which, again, the dates are? The dates are February 3rd through the 5th in Dallas, Texas. Excellent. And to sign up, uh, you go to nsaspeaker.org, click on the appropriate link, and away you go. Well, I'm salt, uh, Bill. So uh, So that's one. We got one. That's one. (laughs) Well, you're going to be there. I'll be there. And Ruby. And Ruby will be there. That's three. I'm guessing Laura might show up. That's four. Yeah. Okay. So we're on our way to record attendance. Right we are. Now. All right. Next up here, we have Michael Soon Lee, CSP. Michael, now I've heard about, you know, cruising for speeches here, but you're talking to us about <laughs> speaking for cruises. Exactly, Brian. Speaking on a cruise ship, either at no cost to you and or getting paid to do it. Either of those sound good to me here. <laughs> okay. So, uh, so how does it, how does this all work? And uh, how many have you done yourself? I have probably done 25, 26. I've lost count. In how many years? In 20 years. I don't do them every week mm-hmm. because I do have a real paying job speaking. But when there's a cruise that comes up, for example, last Christmas, mm-hmm. I spent 15 to 18 days in Southeast Asia on a cruise ship I paid absolutely nothing for the cruise. I had the airfare for myself and for my wife paid to Singapore and home from Hong Kong. We also got to see Cambodia, Vietnam, Singapore. It was fabulous. And Thailand, by the way. Well, at this point, everyone's sitting in their car listening to VUE is going, yeah, yeah, how do you actually do that? So tell us about the opportunities that exist in the cruise environment for speakers. Well, there's two main ways, Brian, that you can speak on a cruise ship. The absolute best is if you put together your own cruises. Your own cruises. That means you get together a group of 12 to 16 people. Depending on the cruise line, that's the minimum number of people you've got to have in order for you and a companion to have a free cabin, which includes your meals. may not include gratuities or port charges. It depends. Mm -hmm. Your price may vary. Yes. 
but I've done them for real estate continuing education, for example. So not only did I get a free cruise, I also got paid by the participants because they're paying to get continuing education and go on their cruise. Now, how do you how do you pitch something like that? Do you go to the cruise line first and say, this is something I'd like to put together? Is there some department at the cruise? Yeah, lines? there there is a cruise department. And you just ask them, how many people do I need to book in order to get a free cabin? And they're happy to tell you. They're also happy to arrange a conference room, depending on the number of people that you've got. Takes care of everything. So they provide the meeting room, AV, all of that. Everything. And all you've got to do is provide the people. So is the AV in the room included? Yes, it is included. So they just want those 12, 14, 15 people paying full board price and they're happy. It's exactly the same thing as a hotel would. Is If they're trying to book meeting rooms, they'll give you the meeting room for free mm-hmm. if you can book the sleeping rooms. So Got it's it. the same thing. And most of our speakers, if you work in the continuing ed world, have a group of people you can market to pretty easily. Realtors, attorneys, nurses, doctors, mm-hmm. all need continuing education. Those are the easiest to put together. You can do your own public seminars. just becomes a little more challenging. So that's one form of speaking on cruise ships. All right. Now, what's you said there were two main mm-hmm. forms. What's the other main form? The other way to speak on cruise ships is to be booked by the cruise line itself or a speaker bureau working for the cruise line. All right. And you've done that also? I have done many of those. Now, so let's talk about the experience of doing that. Now, most cruises, I've been on two, I think, and usually they're about a week. So how many times do you speak? during that week. Now you, if you're booked by the cruise line, yes. you will speak generally, there's always an exception, but generally any day at sea. Okay, so the sea days. Exactly, because there's no place else for the folks to go and they need entertainment. So it's either shuffleboard or you. <laughs> or me. And okay. hopefully my program sounds better than the shuffleboard. But it also means, Brian, that you've got to have a topic that's interested to people that are cruising. Now, you may know that my normal topic is sales groups. How do you sell to people from diverse cultures? Mm-hmm. They don't want to hear that on a cruise ship. So what do they want to hear? They want fun topics. So there's two different forms of speaking on cruise ships. Mm -hmm. One is called special interest speaker. Special interest speaker. Special interest. And so you can come up with various topics. So when I'm a special interest speaker, I will do feng shui for fun and profit. Okay. I will do uh, identity theft protection. Things of well, that that's a, that's a real fun one. It is. And you got to remember, a lot of people on cruise ships are older. Mm-hmm. They may be seniors if it's an upscale cruise line like the yeah. one I did in Azamara was. Mm-hmm. And they want to hear about topics of interest to themselves. But they're fun. They're light. And you got to be really engaging because, again, you got to mm-hmm. compete with shuffleboard as well as things like gambling. So that's called special interest speaking. So it can almost be in any topic as long as it's broad enough that people would find that interesting. And I, I let's go see that speaker. Yeah. And it, they tend to shy away from things like personal financial planning because there's usually Sounds a Sounds like a sales pitch. It does. Right. Although some cruise lines are good with that. So you've got to talk mm-hmm. to the cruise line and or the bureau about what their requirements are. What time of day are you usually giving this speech? Is it like, okay, in the afternoon when it's incredibly hot or the morning or night? It varies. For example, my program was from 11 a.m. to noon shipboard time, whatever that happens to be, wherever they are. Mm -hmm. 
I had a friend who was speaking on the cruise line and the same ship, and he was speaking from 2 until 3. And his topic was basically in and around the area of meditation, things of that nature. The second type of speaker, Brian, Mm -hmm. is called destination speaker. These are people who talk about the ports of call, but not specifically about the tours or anything else, because they usually have a port speaker who sells those port tours. Mm -hmm. So you don't want to conflict with them. But so on the one in Southeast Asia, I was the destination speaker. So I would, the day before we got there, talk about the people of Thailand. How do you bargain with them? How do you say hello and goodbye? What are some of the things that they like to do? And what are their hobbies? What are their sports that they follow? So it would make the the visitor's experience just that much richer. Mm -hmm. The thing they really enjoyed about my presentation was how do you negotiate with people from Thailand, people from Cambodia, and people from Vietnam? They had not a clue. These people will bargain over absolutely everything. Uh, Whereas in America, we don't bargain over much. And so it was a bit of a challenge to get them in the mindset. Once they did and they started trying it, they kept coming back to me over the course of the cruise and said, I, I got everything you said and more. It was great. So it took them a little while to get into it. They didn't believe it until they tried it. Mm-hmm. But that was one of the things I spoke about. I also talked about culture, talked about a little bit about the history of the people. And again, just how do you relate to people in those countries? How do you not offend them? And is it okay to ask about their culture? So in a typical week on a cruise, when you're doing the sea days, are you doing the same presentation multiple times or you're uh, doing one presentation on one day and a different presentation on another day? Generally, you're going to do different presentations each day. But your contract with either the bureau and or the cruise line Mm -hmm. will dictate what days you're going to speak and what you're going to speak on. So generally what they want to see, number one, they want to see a video of you before they'll ever book you. Okay. They generally want to see you speaking in front of a fairly large audience, minimum 30 to 50 people. Sure. They want to see two people. Mm-hmm. They also want to see you using PowerPoint because they usually have PowerPoint. They've had some bad experiences with people who just kind of winged it off the cuff. So they want to see at least that. Once they approve of your video, then they want to see a list of topics. Okay. Catchy titles, just like we know how to do as speakers. Absolutely. And really good content in one paragraph. And it's got to sound like something that would be interesting to people that were on a cruise, in their shorts, on the high seas, again, competing with shuffleboard. Now, do you ever get paid for this, or is it always the case of you're basically trading labor for the free cruise? When you're speaking for the cruise line, Mm -hmm. again, there's always an exception, but generally, you will simply get your cabin paid for and your meals and that of your companion. I was lucky on this particular cruise to Southeast Asia, they really were desperate. So they agreed to pay for my airfare and my wife's airfare. So you have to get to wherever the cruise is taking off from. And you have to get home too, Brian. Well, home too, exactly. And some of these are in exotic locales, which is nice, but they're very expensive. All right, Michael, we like it. Me wanted to do this. So what are the next steps? You talked about bureaus. do you, do you think it's best to try and find a bureau? Do you think it's best to approach cruises, uh, cruise lines directly? What do you think the best next steps are? Really, the best way to go, because you've got access to many more cruise lines, is to go to a cruise line site, which is www.cruising.org. O-R-G. 
I think we can remember that. Cruising Cruising dot org. That is a website portal for 25 cruise lines. Okay. And they have all the requirements, all the contacts there. All you want to do is talk to them about where are you going, who do you need, what do you need, do you need a destination speaker, do you need a special interest speaker, and you pick your dates, you apply for it. If they select you, they'll want to see your dates, they'll want to see your topics, and you'll clear it with them, and then you'll figure out how to get there. Now, the nice thing about the travel, if they are not willing to pay for your airfare, mm-hmm. most of the cruise lines will let you travel as a crew member on crew rates. So they have a special negotiated rates with the airlines. Absolutely, and that's one of the lowest rates you can get. So that can really lower the cost of cruising. So what I figured on my cruise to Southeast Asia, Brian, it would have cost us about $30,000 because I actually took my Mm -hmm. son as well and got that thrown in as well. Not his airfare, unfortunately, but his cabin as well. So it would have cost us about thirty grand for the mm-hmm. whole thing. Now remember, with us as speakers, we're in about a fifty percent tax bracket as self-employed people. Yep. It would have cost me. I would have had to earn sixty thousand dollars gross after taxes to have had thirty thousand dollars to do this cruise. So that's why I agreed to spend twenty-one days of my life on that cruise ship, and we had a blast. You meet great people, you eat great food, you see wonderful places that you might not have ever seen before, and you're doing it pretty much at very little or no cost. Now, if uh, let's say uh, an NSA member is thinking, okay, I'm going to try it, I'm going to go to the cruising.org, cruising.org, and they're going to make a pitch here. If they had a question, would you be open if they sent you an email asking you a quick question about this? Absolutely. My email address is Michael, M-I-C-H-A-E-L, at ethnoconnect, E-T-H-N-O-C-O-N-N-E-C-T, all one word, dot com. Michael at ethnoconnect.com. Be happy to answer any questions people have about cruising, getting booked as a speaker, but I'm telling you, Brian, it's a wonderful thing. You well, got it. You got to try it, and I'll help you. Well, you email know, me. Oh, I will. The first email you're going to get is going to be for me. All right, here we are with Building the Biz, and we are with Brett Clay. Brett is a speaker that I've known for a while, and I'm really glad to get his opinions on some stuff that's really going to matter to us. Now, just so you know his background, his chops to be able to tell us some of these things here, uh, he is an expert on change leadership, and he's the author of the book Selling Change, and I know that for like 22 years, I believe, he has been a sales and marketing consultant and trainer and speaker and writer, blogger, all the things that people give us money for. All right, Brett, so fill in the blanks on this question. Every speaker should have their own blank because blank. Every speaker should have their own radio show because they should have a way for people to tune in to their message. All right, their own radio show. So we should go to Howard Stern and say, excuse me, I need that airwaves. I mean, when you say radio show, I mean, is this an internet radio show on the airwaves, both? What do you mean? Well, you know, the air is old Old time, that's uh, traditional. The power that the, where you can get a worldwide signal is over the internet. So that's really the trick is to put up a channel that people can tap into, they can subscribe to, and it can go around the world. 
Now, when you say your own kind of internet radio show, is this kind of like an audio version of YouTube, or is this more like an audio blog? When you say radio show on the internet, what what exactly do you mean? Sure. Now, there are a number of formats that you can choose from in designing your show. The most typical is a sort of a talk show format where you interview an expert. That's the one that I've that I do that I've chosen. It really provides a lot of great content for your audience. I just am amazed at the people I've had on the show and the just pearls of wisdom that they've shared. And that's the kind of thing that can really attract an audience and help you build your online platform. All right. Before we get into the mechanics of that, let's kind of back up and say, okay, this this radio show, is this a weekly thing, a monthly thing? How, how often does it come out? So... I uh, <laughs> am the kind of person that doesn't like to have a specific schedule. So it comes out when the mood strikes you. <laughs> it comes out when I want to, when I've got time, and uh, when I can schedule the interviews and then get them edited and posted on the Internet. So I, I do mine completely asynchronously at my whim. Asynchronously. That's, that was impressive that you dropped that in there, oh, which means whatever you stinking want to. Okay. Yes. Okay. That, but it sounds better the way you phrased it. Now, some people do a regular schedule. They do, uh, for example, I was just on a show yesterday that is every single week at 10 a.m. on Thursdays. Now, that you have to be much more disciplined about, and that person has an assistant to help get the, the interviewees scheduled and get the, get the information packets out and the questions back that the, that the guests want to be asked and all that stuff. So there are a number of ways you can do it. Another one is you can do, like you said, a podcast where you just have your own content or you talk to the mirror. You're like the Rush Limbaugh, uh, and you just tell people how all of your own wisdom. I think uh, for the people that can do that, rock on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I, I think it's a lot more interesting to learn from the other people. And the other benefit of having this radio show where you bring guests on is you go to any conference. You go to – it doesn't matter who it is. And you, and you grab them after they get off the stage. You say, hey, I'm Brad Clay. I'd love to have you on my radio show. Would you have 15 minutes in the next couple of months? And they, no one says no to no that. No one says no when you say the magic words, radio show. Now, I think it's interesting that you would say that. Uh, because you're right. If you said to someone, "Hi, I'd like you to have 15 minutes on my podcast," <laughs> but when I mean radio show, that that's a pretty sexy phrase. Or the other thing is, I mean, what did we do in the past? We would say, uh, "I'd really like to get your endorsement for my book," or "Could I talk to you about doing some marketing with you?" I mean, it's just not as it's not a good uh, line. <laughs> Mm-hmm, sure. But radio show was great. So let's let's now talk about, before we talk about how you line up guests and how frequently you do that, let's talk about the experience of subscribing to this. In other words, how if I'm a prospect of yours, and where do I go to hear this? Do I sign up for it? Is it like signing up for a blog? How does that work? So I have a website dedicated to the show, which is called The Actuation Zone. So you can go to actuationzone.com. Mm-hmm. You can subscribe through the RSS that way. Sure. Or it's on iTunes. So you can go to iTunes, search for the name of the show, and get the subscription that will immediately put the show every time a new one is posted onto your Apple device. So when you're talking to audiences, and I assume you're going to push them towards your, or sorry, you wouldn't push them. You would share with them. You would share with them the opportunity to hear more. Uh, where do you tell them to go? Well, so right now I'm promoting my book. So I always tell them to go to sellingchange.com, which is the book's website. Right. And then there's a link on the website then to go to the actual, actualization. Okay. You can say it. Actuation. Actuation zone. Okay. 
The, you can uh, trademark that one. I'm not going to try and steal it from you. <laughs> it's already trademarked. It's a oh, circle art. Okay. <laughs> so, Brett, I mean, is it just a straight radio show, or do you actually have commercials? During the show, I ha- in the middle, I just started doing this, actually. Mm-hmm. I-, I had 62 episodes where I had no commercials at all, and I just started adding some commercials in there. And during the commercial, I'm, of course, promoting my book. So I say, go to sellingchange.com. So that the show gives me the opportunity to cross-pollinate my other one of their web properties. So do you basically, the commercial break is you talking about a different thing. Right. right. Let's talk about the, I guess, practical, tactical aspect of this. So I'm here in VOE land and I'm thinking, Brett, this sounds pretty cool, but I'm not a technical wizard. I mean, how hard is it to record yourself, record someone else, edit it, put in music and sound effects, you know, record your own commercial and post it. Is that a hugely hard thing? Is that an easy thing? How long did it take you to learn how to do that yourself? <laughs> well, I would, I would like to say it's easy, and it is once you know how to do it. Ah, it's easy once you know how to do it. Okay. I've tried to produce high quality, and it's frankly took me a year and a half to get to climb the quality ladder. But getting started is really simple. You just need a USB microphone. And if you're on an Apple, Apple has a, uh, some voice recorder software. The, it's interesting that the, even the old-time radio stations, AM, FM, where you do interviews, they are now throwing out all of their old telephony and analog equipment, and they're using Skype. Even the, Skype, the really? pros are using Skype. So, so all you do is uh, – what I did is I got a Skype phone number, mm-hmm. and I put that on my – what I call my interview preparation sheet that I send out to guests before the interview, and they call into my Skype number. And uh, on the PC, you use a software called Call Recorder, which mm-hmm. records yep. the, the Skype call. And uh, so that's very simple to record the, the actual interview. So you're getting, in essence, phone interviews, but instead of going through the phone and sound like, hello, I'm here at Brett Clay's, you're actually getting a nice, clear signal through Skype. Well, I certainly am on my side because I'm recording straight to my hard disk. It's not going over the phone. Yeah. Most people still prefer to call over the phone. Yeah. And I was just, I've just started with a, a new radio show, uh, and I'm going to be recording two, two of my shows per month out of their studio. And they mm-hmm. were saying that people m- misunderstand that actually Skype is the best quality you can get. So if your guest is on a PC or, or an Apple on Skype, that's way better than if, if they call over the phone. Right. So, so I guess that's, that's the new best practice of if you're going to do an interview with someone remotely, you use Skype, not the phone. Right, exactly. And with Call Recorder, you get it as a, what, an MP3 or a WAV file? Exactly. And then you just bring it into Audacity, or I use Audition, which is the standard in the radio industry, to edit it down. I like to take out all the ums, ahs, and any any conversation where we, we're getting mixed up on the question. By the way, that raises another choice that you have, and that is, do you pre-record or you just record live and just let it go? So for mine, I pre-record it, and then whenever I have a chance, I edit it, and then I post it. So you give them enhanced reality. <laughs> They're better than they are in person. Exactly. And I am, too. <laughs> exactly. And just so you know, he said ums all the time, and I edited Brett just now, just so you know. All right, so here's the question. So I'm thinking, I'm going, okay, this sounds good. I could do this. What are the benefits that you've experienced so far? So you've been doing this show for about 
six months, a year? No, for about 18 months. About oh, 18 months. More than that now, yeah. Okay. So you, you've been doing it. This isn't like some new venture. You've been doing it. What benefits have you seen in your business from having this radio show? So the, the number one thing is that you're going to build platform, and it's a great way to put content out there. You know, you have to put the honeypot out there to attract the bees and the bears. That, uh, if you will, want bees and bears, but yes. <laughs> to attract your audience that will, will build your, your community. So that's the number one reason to do it. The number two reason, which is kind of a, a collateral benefit, is that you get to meet all these great people. I was in Amsterdam at the Global Speaker Federation at the Cigar Peg, and I met this woman, Mary Kelly. He's a PhD, Naval Academy, uh, in the Navy for long. And uh, we followed up and I said, hey, let's get on my radio show. So she's going to be, I recorded it uh, last week. She'll be on the radio show next week. And now Mary and I are working together to cross-market our book. She's putting, she's presenting my book as a gift for people when they ask questions when she speaks. And I'm doing the same. And this is a great, without having that sort of vehicle to connect on, to, to collaborate over, it just would be, Maybe, you know, a lot harder to find an excuse to work together. So I, I love the fact that this radio show is a, a situation where both people benefit mutually. It's people are both incentivized to help the other person. What a great thing that is. That sure sounds like the spirit of NSA. Exactly. So it's the 90s. Hey, let's do lunch. Now it's like, let's be on my radio show. Exactly. And and really, no, very little barrier to entry. I mean, you can get started so quickly. You can throw up a website, or you don't even have to throw up a website. You can put it onto your your existing blog page. Now, another point I'd like to mention, we were talking about Skype, is that you can also do video. So the beauty about internet radio is it's multimedia. You can have text. You can have a transcript. So for people that want to be visually oriented, you can have the audio, and you can have the video. So I'll take my my quote-unquote radio show in the field with my video camera, my Terry Brock special setup that, mm-hmm. that he talked about. Special shout-out to Terry Brock, yes. <laughs> that he, he presented on YouTube back in, in uh, Phoenix, and that's the setup I still use today. And I'll do a video interview, and that goes on the radio show, so you have both video and audio. So it's your radio show is a TV show with a transcription. It does it all. It's it's. I mean, the power of the Internet and and the ability to, to reach out to people around the world. I just interviewed a couple of days ago a professor from the London School of Business who has a new book called uh, Reinventing Management. What a great interview that was. And, and I just I saw an, uh, his article on CNBC uh, Money, and I said, hey, I've, I'm a change expert. I'll, I, I'd love to talk to you about change and have you on my radio show. Sure enough, a month later, he's on there, and now I made a relationship with this guy in, in London. Well, this is really impressive, Brett. I just want to kind of flesh this out a little bit more. So you're watching like CNN, CNBC, these news channels. You see someone who's being, you know, covered in the traditional legitimate news. And you're thinking, why not me? You contact him directly. Will you be in my radio show? And he's like, absolutely. Yeah, it's wonderful. So CNN, Brett Clay, same level. (laughs) One day. I love November because it marks the beginning of the holiday season. And on November 24th, I'm always thankful for our NSA family and how we all care for each other and the speaking profession. 
November is also when our incoming NSA chapter presidents come together at our headquarters in Tempe, Arizona, for a special event we fondly call Camp NSA. NSA is a very unique association in that we invest about 40000 a year on leadership development for chapter leaders. We cover the lodging and meals for all the incoming chapter presidents and their chapters pay for their airfare. Fortunately, we don't have to pay a dime for meeting space thanks to the foresight of past NSA leaders. The NSA National Headquarters building in Tempe is free and clear. NSA purchased it in 1991, and it's tripled in value since then. Ed Scannell first envisioned the concept of Camp NSA, and Tom Winninger rolled it out in November 1998. The board approved the event to strengthen and unify the connection between national and chapter leaders. The training provides practical tools for chapter leaders the year before they serve as president. It also supports a succession planning process by ensuring all chapters have a president-elect to send a year in advance of their term. Additionally, we have a past president's council, formerly called Chapter Leadership Council, or CLC, whose members serve as coaches to current chapter leaders. A chapter leadership program is also offered at convention, which, by the way, is open to all members. The chapters continue to invest in its leaders as well. Several of the chapters I visited these past few months, including Michigan, Pittsburgh, and Ohio, hosted a breakfast to honor past presidents. It's a great benefit to NSA to have chapter leaders ready to provide outstanding value at local gatherings of members. So, as November represents an investment in our NSA future leaders, my question to you is, do you have that same commitment to yourself? How much are you investing in your own professional development? One way you can do that is to attend the Winter Conference in Dallas, Texas, February 3rd through the 5th, with unique programming by co-chairs Ruby Newell-Legner and Bill Stainton. I'm thankful for our early leaders' foresight our continuing efforts to train up our leaders, and for all of you for your membership in NSA. Happy Thanksgiving, everyone. Each month, VOE closes with a special segment called VO Me. That's basically commentary by me about some aspect of platform skills, marketing, or just something that strikes my fancy. Today, the topic is money as on-stage problem solver. A few years back, I was making a customized presentation for a group of retail store managers. It was for a home sale kickoff meeting. Now, the event had a baseball theme, the idea being that they would hit a home run with revenues. So I bought a wiffle ball automatic pitching machine. Then I invited up three regional managers who would attempt to hit the wiffle balls with a bat into the audience. Now, 
I'll be candid. I basically chose three female regionals to do this. I figured with them wearing designer power dresses and high heels, they wouldn't be able to hit the wiffle ball very hard or far. Maybe an easy pop-up. So no safety issues. And for the first two regionals, that's exactly how it went. But then, of course, Murphy's Law struck. When I called the name of the third regional manager, she didn't answer. Apparently, she was in the hallway on her cell phone. So one of her district managers jumped up and said, I'll take her place. I was thrown for a second, so I didn't stop him. He was about 6'2", 220 pounds, and likely a former star athlete. When it was his turn to bat, he took the first automatically lobbed wiffle ball pitch and drilled a line drive at amazing velocity directly at the front row and into his store manager's forehead. Even people in the back could hear the smack of the ball on his bald and quickly turning red head. There was an immediate and uncomfortable hush in the room. Everything slowed down for me, and oddly, I actually had met that store manager who had gotten hit. His name was Harry, and he clearly was in pain and not at all happy with me. My major league slugger was looking guilty, and running through my mind were two thoughts. Brian, you are an idiot, and will my liability policy cover this? At that moment, I decided it was a perfect time to try out some advice I had heard, and that was to use cash to buy your way out of trouble. So I yelled up, Everyone give a big round of applause to Harry Wilson, our hit-by-a-wiffle-ball instant winner. Because Harry didn't just catch the ball but got smacked in the face, he wins $500 in cash to use for his store's home sale kickoff party. Then I paused to see what would happen next. First, everyone applauded and laughed. And then Harry looked at me and mouthed, Are you serious? I nodded back, and he smiled. Crisis averted. Now, from a safety point of view, I was indeed an idiot. Yes, my liability policy would have covered me, and I absolutely paid up the 500 bucks. But what I learned that day was, yes, you can use cash to buy your way out of problems on stage. Well, that's it for this month's VOE. Be sure to continue the conversation by going to the National Speakers Association Facebook page, and we'll talk to you again in December. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.